So as that's happening, I'm gonna go ahead and kind of get started because I got a lot of work to do this morning uh, and we don't have that much time for me to do it in. So um, the first quarter of the first year that I was the pastor of this church, so around a year ago now, or two years ago, uh, three years ago, what? Well, almost three years ago now, uh, we did this first thing that we call now call Rapping with Ross. That's Stuart Davenport's name for it. I'm terrible at naming things, and I let him. Turns out he's bad at it also. <laughs> um, so um, the way it started was I was told that there was this time at the Morning Star used to do a thing with Travis that they called TNT, Talking and Travis, I think it was, and that people would come here in the evenings and have conversations. And so we tried to do something like that. And I wasn't real happy with the turnout. I wanted like everybody to be there, and there's just no way that you all are coming to church twice in a week, apparently. And so I uh, said, let's just do it during church. And we'll pass out index cards for a week or two prior for people to ask questions, write questions on, and turn them back in. And then I'll have some time to do some research and try to answer the questions. Well, the first couple of times it was easy because I would get like five or six cards, and the questions were pretty easy. And then the last few times it's been more cards and more difficult questions. And so like, even if I gave one minute to all of these cards, there's no way that we would get out of here on time. And if there's one thing I know, it's that Kathy will not abide by being late for the next service. And so we've got to hustle or else I'll be in trouble with my boss. Um, so I'm gonna answer as many of these questions as I can. I grouped some of them together in categories so that I can try to get the general idea of all of them. But if you ask a question that you don't feel like I answered, it's nothing personal about your question. And I have no idea who wrote them. So it's definitely not personal about you. But if you want more information, if you want to ask your questions to me, call me, we'll go get some coffee or lunch. You can buy and we'll have a great time. Um, but for real, like I do want to have conversations. Um, I'm relational in that way, and so if I say something that you're like, I don't quite agree with that, that's great. That means our friendship can build even more because we can have more conversations around those disagreements, right? Like our disagreements don't have to separate us, no matter what our news media sources tell us. They don't have to, because we're bigger than that. So here's the first question. I'm gonna to try to get through some church questions quickly, and then we'll get into some deeper theological things. The first one um, is, what does it mean for Morningstar to be in a relationship with Truth or Consequences First Methodist, and why should we do this? So what it means for us to be in partnership with Truth or Consequences First Methodist, to get to that answer, I have to tell the story. So the Methodist Church is a sending organization. They send pastors to different <laughs> churches in different cities based on the pastor's gifts and talents of what that church has a need for or a desire. Late in the season of the year when they start sending pastors, the pastor who was at First United Methodist Church in TRC got a call that he had a church opportunity in California. And so he moved to California and it left that church open and they didn't have anybody else at the point because everybody was already situated. So our district superintendent, who is kind of middle management in the Methodist Church, uh, called me. So I'd be a shop foreman, he's middle management, and then the owner of the the boss of the white I'm stopping there. So I get a call from Eddie Rivera and he says, hey, this opportunity has come up. 
And I know you're the kind of pastor, because Eddie and I used to work together, who likes to start new things and plant churches and do that sort of stuff. You got any interest in truth or consequences? And I said, if we don't have, uh, who do you, who are you sending there? And he said, Stuart. And I was like, so some of you know Stuart, some of you don't. And I said, well, Stuart would be great there, but only if they, they mean, meaning truth or consequences first, want him to come there so that we can join forces in ministry together. So he calls Stuart, Stuart and Sarah, Sarah, his wife is an attorney. They sit down with Eddie and myself and Sarah asks like about a thousand attorney type questions. And at the end of it, Sarah and Stuart felt really comfortable uh, or mostly comfortable with being appointed there quarter time so that Stuart could pastor that little church up there. What happens for us here at Morningstar tonight at our charge conference, we are going to have a conversation and maybe have a vote to be in partnership with them. The partnership simply is this. We partner with them in ministry in every way possible, with the exception of finances and leadership. So they'll keep their finances separate from ours, and I believe wholeheartedly in contextual ministry, meaning like you've got to be doing ministry on the ground in the place that you live. And so it'd be really weird for our leadership board to be overseeing what's happening in a town that we don't even live in. And so they are going to have their leadership board, they're gonna have their finances, we'll have ours, we'll have our finances, we may partner on a few things financially, but it's going to be uh, proportionate to how much it's going to be used by each church. And then, um, but we're going to support the ministries of them and they're going to support the ministries of us. Eventually, I'll probably start going there once every five or six weeks and Stuart will be coming back here so that you all can stay connected with them. And I think maybe even most importantly, so he can stay connected with us. But that's the plan with Truth or Consequences. The why is simple. Jesus said, go make disciples in the name of Jesus Christ. Go make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit presents an opportunity to me to do that in some form or fashion, especially if it's only a way that's going to succeed, if it's only successful possibility is if God is highly involved in it, then I want to be part of that. If it can be successful just by my will and force, um, that's kind of fun. But it's not nearly as fun as when you sense God saying, this thing can't be done without me, so you should go try it. And that's where we're at with truth or consequences, is God is calling me and us and our churches together to do ministry. And I have a, I have a feeling incredible things are going to be happening. So anyway, uh, after the first of the year, there will be a more full plan in place of how we're going to kind of restart that church down there. They're wanting to like jump in and change their name to Morningstar Truth or Consequences and like paint their building and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, hey, just pump the brakes on that for a second. Like, we got some work to do before we get there. So I hope that answers that question for you. Um, that's the main kind of church question that I feel like came possibly from this service. The other ones that are about church are very specifically about the other services. So I'm just going to leave those to you. So this is the type of question that you all write now, that I literally was dreaming about the last two nights and researching for about the last five days trying to figure out how I was going to answer this. Your mission to ponder should you choose to accept them. <laughs> Bonus points to whoever knows what movie that's from. <laughs> Bring it on. Cheerleading movie. <laughs> 
Recently, I've been educating myself about disassociative identity disorder, which affects 1-3% to of the population and is estimated to be more common than schizophrenia. Yeah, that's already getting deep, right? In my research, the majority of people with DID have been severely betrayed by the church and often their abusers use the church to hide and justify the abuse. A lot of systems reject the church and systems with altars for a Christian usually also have altars to reject the church. What is their soul? How does salvation work for them? And then this kind person said, see reverse side for resources. So he gave me some points to go and start my research with. Thank you, person who wrote this question. So here's what I discovered. Disassociative identity disorder is what we use to commonly cause multiple, call multiple personality disorder. About 3% of the population, one to 3% as this uh, person wrote, um, has DID. And they typically um, are American. It's more common in the United States than in other countries, or at least diagnosed more here than in other countries. Most, the majority of people with DID are female. And what the understanding is, is that they disassociate from their personality as a way of coping with and protecting themselves from severe abuse. And so you're born, you have this personality that you're born with and you start to grow and, and then around young age, severe abuse of different types starts to take place and to protect and cope from that, with, uh, uh, from that abuse, they will disassociate from their personality and literally put on a different personality. So they may have a different name that they've given themselves or that they have, different hand actions. Sometimes their posture is so different, they actually look like a different person. They may have different ethnicities within this other um, uh, identity. And so what they say is that all of those identities, because some people disassociate multiple times, is called the system. And so what this person is saying is that this child who was abused have, have oftentimes, the abusers use the church to hide behind their abuse. I mean, I think we all know that's a thing that happens sometimes. And they will disassociate and protect, the, protect themselves and that person by disassociating. So this, the, uh, the writer of this question is saying, which soul is the soul? And when it comes to issues of heaven and hell, if this personality is a devout Christian and this one is maybe an atheist, what happens? The end. I don't know. No, not really. Here's, I don't know, is the honest answer. That's the only way I can answer with integrity is I don't know. But here's what I know. That any time any of us suffer abuse, God is with us. It's not that God allows it. It's not that God causes it. It's that God is with us in the abuse, brokenhearted, and wishing it would stop also. And God is always doing everything God can do to protect the person. And so maybe, just maybe, this is a way that God has given this person to be protected somehow in some way. And our society needs to be better at welcoming all kinds of people in and accepting all kinds of people and loving everyone and having a better understanding of what it means to be a person who suffered severe abuse. But I know this, God loves that person. 
And God is with that person. And God wants that person to flourish and to thrive and to become who it is that they were created to be. And I don't know all of the psychological sides of it, and none of us really know what happens after death, because as far as I know, there's only been one person who ever came back, and you know, that story happens once a year on Easter, or every day or every moment in reality. People say that when you are baptized, you feel the Holy Spirit. People tell me when they have been baptized, they do not feel the Holy Spirit. What happens if you don't feel the Holy Spirit? That's a good question. Um, called faith is the way I would say that. Sometimes I think we, as humans, rely on our emotions, uh, maybe to a fault, like too much to a fault, and sometimes we rely too much on our intellect and don't let our emotions become part of who we are. We, we have parts of our personality that um, we repress and other parts that we lift up. And so sometimes we have this expectation of a highly emotional experience upon baptism. And the fact of the matter is, baptism is our understanding that God is hugging us and we're hugging God back. So when I baptize someone, and I see faces in here of people that I've baptized, I always want them to know, listen, this is you saying, I'm hugging you back. At birth, God gives us this great big hug even before birth, and it's like, I love you, you're mine, I want you with me. And then at baptism, we're saying, I love you back, and I want to be with you, and I'm here with you. And so the Holy Spirit part of it is trusting that the Spirit of God is indwelling us and giving us strength to walk through our discomfort and our difficult times and giving us gifts to support our faith when it's hard to find. So sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. I don't, if the person who wrote this, if you're married, you'll know this is true. Like, and no judgment, Michelle knows this, we've talked about it. There are times when she and I are in love like high school sweethearts. Like we just can't stand to be apart from one another. We want to be around each other. When I'm driving home, I'm like all excited. I'm like, oh man, I get to go see Michelle. Most of the time it's like, oh hey, there's Michelle. You know, I love her. She's my partner in life. She's my wife. We're, we're going through this thing together. But there are days that I'm like, I don't really like her. <laughs> and there are a lot of days where she's like, I'm not sure about this guy, you know? But we have made a decision to love her. Part of it is based on emotion, but the biggest part of it is based off of our intellect and a decision to stay with it because we know the emotional part will only go so far. So if you're looking for a feeling from God, you'll get that. But oftentimes it's like love, it's a decision. I decide to be with God. That's my answer. Why does the church not talk about spiritual warfare? It's everywhere and it's important. Uh, I agree. And I don't, I don't know if by the church you mean me, or if you mean by the church you mean like a bigger thing than that. But I'll just say this, I feel like I talk about spiritual warfare every single time I preach. Because I believe that our enemy, well there's another question that says, does, does the Methodist church believe in Satan? Yes. The Satan is how it's literally translated. The Satan is our enemy, our adversary. 
the deceiver, the deceptive one, the one who tries to get us to doubt who it is that we are. You may remember in the very first sermon I ever preached here, I talked about the baptism of Jesus and how Jesus comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And Jesus hears the words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The next voice we hear talking is the deceiver saying, if you are the son of God. So spiritual warfare is anything that happens that causes you to doubt who you are as a child of God. It could be uh, like this desire to have more things and you lose focus and you miss out on your priorities and so you forget who you are. So yeah, spiritual warfare is real, and I feel like I talk about it every single Sunday, but I'm talking about it like at different angles, because if I just came in and like, hey, there's this thing called the Satan coming after you, trying to get you to doubt, trying to make you forget who you are, you're like, oh yeah, okay, whatever, I'm going someplace else, because that sermon was preached last week. So I come at it from different angles, probably every week, I hope. Does that make sense? I hope so. We're going to owe you a dollar after that one. <laughs> Why does the Bible talk about hell, and how does it apply to people now? Did Jesus go into hell? He took our sins, and sinners go to hell. Do Methodists believe in Satan? Do Methodists acknowledge spirits of the dead, ghosts, good or bad ones, and is there purgatory? I'll try to get to that stuff, but I'm going to get to these questions about hell and Satan. I've already talked about Satan a little bit. So um, the Bible talks about hell because God wants us to be with God. And do I, I don't know what happens in the afterlife. I don't know the temperature of hell, and I don't know the furnishings of heaven. But what I do know is that God wants us to be with God, and when we are with God in fullness of ourselves and the fullness of God, we call that heaven. And when we are separated from God with the fullness of ourselves and the fullness of God, we call that hell. And I can tell you right now, I have sat in a room with people who are literally living in hell. Have you ever sat in a room with someone who is an addict who's, who's um, going through withdrawal symptoms? You've sat with someone who's living in hell. Have you ever sat with someone who has PTSD from crazy, crazy, horrific things that they experienced, whether that be in violent relationships or in war or as police officers or as uh, first responders? If you're sitting with someone who's suffering deeply from PTSD, you have sat with someone who is experiencing hell, this feeling of like there's nothing good happening right now, right here. And it's heartbreaking because we recognize that God wants to be in all of that and that our sin has caused those things to happen. Whether it be the abuser's sin or our sin of never being able to figure out how to get together as different societies and get along. But when we sin, we are making the choice to step away from God, and we know that. But we also know what happens when we start stepping toward God. It's not that things get better. It's not that all of a sudden you start making more money and you get the job that you want and uh, everything in all of your relationships is just fine. But as you step towards God, you get closer to the center of being who it is that God created you to be. And that's closer to being what heaven is. So we pray this prayer with the kids every week. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The further we get away from God's will, the further we are from heaven. The 
closer we get to God's will, the closer we are to heaven. So I think the Bible talks about hell as a way of telling us, um, you know what it feels like. And it's maybe not as much the punishment as a grace to say, like, you have these chances to keep moving closer to God and keep doing so. Our faith is a gift, and when we exercise it, we grow. So this question about Jesus going into hell, uh, there's a theory, a, the a theological idea that when Jesus was on the cross, he took on our literal sin, all of our sin. And therefore, he was separated from God, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he was sensing this separation from God, this hell that we were just talking about. And he was taking on that punishment himself, and so when he died, the theory is that he went to hell, essentially stole the keys, and escaped, and came up and rose from the dead, so that hell does not have the last word anymore. Um, I don't know, I mean, I don't know, like, that's a theological idea, so if, that, if that's how you believe, that's great. If that's not how you believe, I, that's great too. Um, but what I do know is that Jesus' death on the cross was not the last word. It was the resurrection that was the last word. And in your lives, you know what death feels like because you've experienced it. When you've brought it into other people's lives through your sin, or when someone sins against you and brings it into your life, it's like this tiny death happens, right? But when we step into the relationships and we ask for forgiveness and we offer forgiveness, it brings about the opportunity for resurrection to happen because death and resurrection isn't only about the end of life. It's about right here and right now also. Which I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that heaven and hell are not just about then and there. They're about here and now as well. Yes, Methodists believe in Satan. We believe in Satan as, um, you know, basically kind of anybody does, right? Like the story in the Bible is that this beautiful angel named Lucifer, which is who we call Satan, was so beautiful that people started to worship, other angels started to worship him, and so those angels and Lucifer were cast out of heaven and like now are just kind of dwelling and roaming around or whatever. But here's the thing, like we oftentimes in our heads We'll say, here's God and here's Satan as if they're opposites. God has no opposite. The opposite of Satan is not God. The opposite of Satan, if the story of that is accurate, is the archangel Michael. And so we have nothing to be afraid of of this thing except that the deceiver, the liar, the father of lies, whatever we want to call this thing wants to get us off track and wants to say, hey, Ken, if you are a son of God, you would be a better teacher. Ken, if you were a better, if you were a son of God, you'd be a better husband and father. The deceivers constantly trying to pull us away from the idea that we are children of God. That's the job of this person. That's the job of this thing, whatever it is. That's what this thing was doing in heaven, and that's what this thing is still doing, is trying to pull people away. Do Methodists acknowledge spirits of the dead, uh, ghosts, good or bad ones? So here's the thing, I'm already doing research on this. Next October, we're gonna preach a sermon series 
uh, called Supernatural. And every Sunday of October, we're going to talk about ghosts and spirits and thin spaces and all the kinds of stuff that people like to talk about around Halloween. And then on the last Sunday of the month, all the kids can wear the Halloween costumes to church. That's next year. You can wear them this year if you want, but next year is going to be a whole thing. And so uh, we're already doing research for that. So this idea of ghosts, I don't know. I personally don't really believe in ghosts of dead people. I believe that when we die, we're dead. And that our souls are with God. And that we would never have a reason to be like, oh, hang on, God, I need to walk around earth for a little bit longer. Because why would you ever do that? Like, you're with God. But here's what I think happens is God sometimes uses the, the remembrances and the memories of our loved ones who have died as a grace. So I'll tell you a story to explain what I, what I think about this. I graduated from seminary and the Methodist Church sent me to Abilene, Texas. I never wanted to live inside the borders of Texas, ever. I'm a New Mexican to my core. I never wanted to live in that heathen place. And I got sent to Abilene, Texas. On the far east side of the Northwest Texas Conference of the Methodist Church, I didn't even know Abilene was there. I'd only been to Abilene one other time in my life, and it was for a family reunion because my paternal grandfather grew up in a little town south of Abilene called Tuscola. Tuscola is most famous because that's where Colt McCoy played high school football. So I get to Abilene, and I'm just mad. I don't like it. Hot, like it's so hot at nighttime, it never cools off. If it gets to 110 in the daytime, it's gonna get to 108 at nighttime. Like it's just it's ridiculous. And I was having a hard time like connecting with people. And, and uh, the youth pastor at the church that I was working at got invited to go to Tuscola to a Lions Club meeting to talk about a mission trip that she had gone on. But she wanted me to go do the talking, and I didn't even go on the mission trip. So I was like, sure, I can make some stuff up. And I went. I've been to Tuscola one other time in my life, and it was for that family reunion. And we parked, and I looked up and realized where we had gone was the exact little community center where we had had the family reunion. So I'd been there once before, and it was with my grandparents. My grandmother had passed away in the meantime. And as I was walking up to the doors of that community center, I swear to you, I could smell my grandmother's kitchen. <clears throat> and I kind of was just like wanting to stop and just stay there and close my eyes and like go back in time a little bit, you know? And uh, so I was like, that's weird. And I went in and I stand up and I introduce myself. And this old guy in the back goes, how do you spell your last name? So I told him and he goes, we used to have some people around here named that. You related to them? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, I knew your great-grandmother. She lived down at the end of Fourth Street or whatever. I used to go visit her with my mom sometimes. Who was your granddad? So I told him, and he said, well, I met him a few times when he would come back to visit. God was using the ghost of my grandmother to tell me, you got a place. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. I think that's what those things are about. When it's scary and stuff, I don't know. Like, I think it's a bad thing, you know. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I just know, like, the grace that I have, right? Is there purgatory? Methodists say no. Uh, there's one place. When you die, you're with the Spirit of God, or you're not. 
there's no waiting place, there's no like hang out here until things get a little bit better and the time is right. Like, no, it's right now. God's not going to wait, but we don't have to wait either. So uh, we don't we don't believe in purgatory as methods. Time, how are we doing on time? I need to stop. Sorry. I'm not gonna stop. <laughs> I got two more that I have to get to. I feel like I have to. So there was a question that says, um, let me find it. Why are some churches still non-inclusive to everyone? And how do they justify their actions of discrimination? So obviously, whoever wrote this has an opinion, right? Like they're saying that it's discrimination. How do they justify their action? There's another question that says, how do you reconcile the statements in the Bible about homosexuality being a sin um, with the command of Jesus to love everyone? So those are basically the same question in, in a sense, right? Here's how I reconcile that. Um, when I was ordained, the bishop who preached that night, who laid hands on me, preached about three sermons in the time it should have taken him to preach four. Like I'm doing this morning. But here was the gist of what he was saying. Jesus is the plumb line. So anytime you come across something in the Bible that you're struggling to reconcile, line it up with Jesus, and how does Jesus talk about this, and what does Jesus say to do, and how does Jesus say to treat people, and if this, your interpretation of what's happening, doesn't match up with Jesus, you're misinterpreting what's happening. So let me tell you, in a summary, uh, I'll, get, I'll just do it in one word, everything that Jesus said about homosexuality. You ready? What he talked about was divorce, he talked about money, he talked about greed, he talked about hatred, he talked about ostracizing people, people you disagree with. So if we're drawing a line saying that's discriminatory and wrong, and you're drawing a line about it, Jesus is on that side. Because I have really, really close friends and the Methodist Church is in a big old mess about this right now, who disagree with me and my stance on it, and we're still really close friends. And here's how they reconcile it. Ross, if you knew someone who was having an affair, wouldn't you go to them, and wouldn't you think that the loving thing to do would be to go to them and say, you gotta stop this. And if you knew somebody who was diving deep into an addiction, wouldn't you go to them, and won't you, don't you think it would be the loving thing to do to go to them and say, come on, get back on track, get in the right direction? So my friends are doing the same thing that I'm doing, trying to love everyone, period. We just get there in a couple of different ways. So I'm all inclusive. I, I think everybody is welcomed in. Everybody's part of the kingdom of God. Anybody can preach the gospel. Anybody can do all those things, period, no asterisk on the end. Everyone is welcome. But I have really close friends who are on the other side of it. And the thing is, like, we have to work hard to stay at the table and not judge one another because if we draw a line, Jesus is on the other side. Um, and then the last one I'm going to answer uh, as we start communion. I've got to deal with being in trouble again. 
this is important. This is what we come here for. We come here to connect with the Spirit of God and as a United Methodist pastor, I believe that any time that we receive communion, you can experience the real presence of Jesus Christ. And so the question that was asked was, did Jesus ever doubt God? Well, Jesus was God. And I don't know how to explain that. So Jesus never doubted God. But Jesus loved people and welcomed people into his inner circle who did doubt him. In fact, one of them we've named Thomas the Doubter because he was so good at it. He's actually one of my heroes. But if you think about the people who were gathered around the table with Jesus on the night that he was arrested and condemned to die, he welcomes doubters, every single one of them. One denied him that even knew he, who he was. One of them betrayed him because he didn't understand and didn't believe what Jesus was saying about who he was. And the rest of them, in some form or fashion, denied him and doubted that he was the Savior also. And so it is okay to doubt. In fact, if you're a doubter, that makes you more welcome here. Because if you don't have doubt, you have certainty. And certainty is the opposite of faith. Faith is believing in those things we can't see and we can't explain. It's just believe. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread from the table and he gave thanks for the bread. And he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And doubters and sinners and cynics broken for you as often as you eat it. And when the supper was over, he took a cup from the table and he filled it with wine. He gave thanks for it and he gave it to those disciples who were there. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many are the many. For the forgiveness of sin, as often as you drink this, remember me. The command at communion is to remember. Like when I eat tacos and smell tacos being cooked, I remember my grandma's food. And the love that was there. When I tear this bread and hear the sound of it, I remember that I've done this a thousand times, and a thousand times it's just as meaningful. And when I pour the wine and I hear it splashing, I remember the times that I've dipped bread into the juice and then put it in my mouth and experienced grace that I needed that I didn't even know that I needed. And sometimes it's just a thing that I do. And that's okay also. Lord, we have this bread and this juice, just simple things that remind us of nourishment, transformation because at one point this bread was just a seed that grew to became grain and was made into this bread. Nourish our souls, make us agents of transformation.